Hello and welcome back to the show. In today's episode, we have a very special guest joining us. Today, we're speaking with Brian Chadwick. He is a UK-US qualified lawyer with over 26 years of experience in corporate law. Currently, he serves as the Group General Counsel at Devolvo Digital, which is one of the largest independent gaming companies in the world. Now, Brian has had an exciting career journey, which has taken him from various industries and roles, starting off as a All-American athlete. He's been a partner, he's held leadership positions, and he's also served as a deputy chairman for the Tate Council. Throughout his career, he's been a key player in the legal field, growing international corporate law practices, as well as helping the company Miniclip through its transformational growth and also sell to Tencent. In this conversation, we'll be talking about his whole experience of being a qualified lawyer, but starting at the bottom when he came over to the UK. We'll be talking about the importance of relationships and doing a good job, playing the long game and what that actually means. Also, the importance of storytelling, why it's important to be able to craft that narrative about your career and how you've got to where you are today. The importance of partnership and what to do after being fired and having to rebuild everything again from scratch. So, let's get to it. What would be the elevator pitch of, say, your career of how you got to who you are today? Gosh. So, uh, probably the easiest thing to start with is, so I'm a U.S. lawyer first. So, some people may know that in, in America, to become a lawyer, you do a university degree, and then you do law second. So, a university degree in America, you study whatever you like. I was what's called an all-American. So I was top six in the country in the 400 meters and the 800 meters. Um, and I tried to make the U.S. Olympic team. So I was a, I was a, a 400, 800 meter uh, Olympic development person. There we go. Um, so during university, because I was an athlete, it meant I didn't party. I didn't drink. I didn't go out. Like I just was a monk, basically, and ran. Uh, because university for me was paid for. So I had to like not blow it. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, because of all that, U.S. university can tend to be pretty easy, really, in some ways. So I did two degrees. So I did one degree in history and politics, and I did a second degree in philosophy and uh, art. What was it like balancing, say, the sport with the studying? It was fantastic. It was super easy. I, I found it, I really enjoyed the regimen of it. I really enjoyed the, uh, the discipline of it. Uh, and we were very successful. So I went to, I started off at Princeton University and then I left Princeton and went to this small school called Moravian University, a little, a little tiny school, because they were, they had 36 All-Americans, they were national champions, it was like a track school basically. Um, so I went there and uh, we were in a, our own little class, you know, so I was in the athlete kind of zone and got to do, uh, do my studies, do my academics, but then also I, I was running twice a day and things, so, and having special meals, all that kind of great stuff. So I, I had that enjoyable American experience of just of being an, a, a U.S. athlete thing. Um, but then uh, I did law school. Uh, I went in the U.S., so decided that the trying to become international kind of 800 meters runner was not for me. So decided then to do the natural thing and swap to law. Because mm -hmm. well, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting flip because I guess if you've been spending so much of your time becoming an athlete, being top six in the country, there could have been easier routes for you. Like you could have went more to become a coach, potentially, like we're working the system. A lot of, a lot of my mates did. Um, so I think, I think what it was, Yemi, is I think I had decided to be a lawyer a long time before that. So I think I was, I was kind of pre-law in my mind. That's why I studied history and philosophy and politics, you know, all kind of pre-law stuff. So 
the athletics was this interesting diversion for a short period of time. But the great thing about it is I'm a huge believer in the kind of discipline that athletics teaches you, the kind of discipline that sports teaches you, whether it's a team sport or individual sport, whatever it is, but the you know, scheduling, goal setting, you know, being accountable, all that kind of great stuff. So, uh, and that's what my journey was like, you know, as, as an athlete. So went off to law school and then I, I just had this idea to kind of go to Europe, you know, and so did law school in America, which is a three-year doctorate degree. So it's a Juris Doctorate degree. Uh, and luckily I passed, you know, so there we go. So I got, I got my degree and took the, the bar exam, the sort of Pennsylvania bar exam. And the fun, funny thing about it is I took the exam, but the day that the exam finished, I just kind of handed in my papers and I got on a plane and came to London. So I didn't know if I'd passed or not passed. I didn't know if I was going to actually be a lawyer or not a lawyer. I, just took, I, I was already coming to London. One-way one, ticket. One-way ticket. Wow. So by one-way ticket, I was 26 years old. Um, one-way ticket, came over and decided, uh, effectively, I, got a, uh, I enrolled in King's, and I did a master's in law. But kind of like the story you were telling earlier is that I didn't really do the master's in law to do the master's. I just did it for a, a very long visa. Okay. Right? So, um, <laughs> like, because as a student, you get a longer visa. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I, I was just using the system a bit and did a long visa. And I was looking for work. You know, I just basically spent every day, all day, kind of going to class a little bit and then kind of looking for work and just getting rejected, getting rejected, getting rejected, getting rejected. And then the results from the bar exam arrived and I passed. And I was like, because then it meant I could, then it meant I could stay because otherwise I would have to go back to, you know, to Philadelphia and do it again. Uh, and after, it might have been like interview 50 or something, 40, 45, 50 interviews or so, I finally convinced a law firm, a New York law firm that they weren't going to hire me as a lawyer because I'm from Philadelphia. I'm not from New York, but they were willing. What's the difference? Um, it's just it's state laws, all okay. the different states, and there's also an enormous amount of arrogance about it. So New York is the best; everybody else is the worst. So effectively, these guys they say, "Well, if you're not from New York, you're just not smart enough. Like you know, so you couldn't possibly be. We can't possibly hire you because you must be dumb. Like it's that kind of. It's brutal, and, yeah, they, and they're pretty open about it. So you know, it's very, really. Does that still prevail now? Yeah. Uh, a, a bit, I think, yeah. a bit. But the, the fun part about it is that now I hire them. <laughs> so that's quite a nice change. Um, but the, uh, and the, this one law firm, and again, it was, it, it is kind of fascinating because it, it wasn't my own countryman. It was a Canadian woman who was the managing partner of this law firm. And I talked to her a while and I told her my story and talked about, you know, what, what I was up to, all the 45 rejections from all the other New York law firms. And we started brainstorming a bit. And I was saying, you know, one thing that we're good at as junior lawyers is we can write. We just write all day long all the time. And she said, well, you know, there's a partner here who's writing a book on corporate law. Why don't we just give you his papers? You just sit in a room somewhere. You finish his book for him. He puts his name on it. You get paid, but like, at least you get a job. And I was like, cool, I'll be a, I'll be a writer. So that's what I did. So for the first year, I sat and I wrote a book on corporate law for somebody else. You know, I was a ghostwriter. I got no credit for it. Um, but it allowed me to get a paycheck and stay here. And then that was the beginning of the, of the career. And then effectively, once I was hired by this top New York law firm to write a book for them, in the end, they didn't hire me because I still didn't come from New York. So even when the book was done, they're like, but now we can't hire you for real. You know that, right? Wow. Like, you're, like you're just a writer, you know? So, <laughs> but wonderfully, that experience made all the other law firms, like you know, the British ones, were blown away. They're like, yeah, so I, I got a job the same day. Like, yeah, so I got a job. And then 
worked and worked and worked as a corporate lawyer, you know, for a long time and did all the super hard hours and all the super mergers and worked as just the, the junior guy who just does the work, you know, the kind of the, the at the coalface person. You know? Did you have to retrain to do English law? I did, yeah. Okay. So during all of this, like as I was working kind of around the clock, I was also taking all the UK exams. So I did all of those kind of at night and mornings and weekends and so forth. And then qualified as a solicitor as well. So I had that, I had the two together, which was great. And then eventually, you know, I, I was, I've always been a real kind of, I don't know, salesman, I guess, or maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the, not in a negative way, but in a very positive way. And so with these law firms, just working and working and working and working all the time, I was always thinking about the business aspect of law and thinking, you know, how does it make money? And who's like, and how these partners who are my bosses, you know, some of them, are not very credible people. They're just like, they're in it, kind of in it for the money, if you like. And you just want to kind of have a look at them and see whether you, whether you would want to be that person. You know, is, is my trajectory to have your job and to be a person like you, or is my trajectory something different, you know? So I decided it was something different. So effectively, there were a number of smaller law firms that were coming to London, and many of them were excited about setting up an international business, excited about kind of trying to get into the, get a foothold in the London market, but the global market. And they reached out to people like me, you know, senior lawyers who are not yet a partner. And the offer was, well, if you come join our law firm, then you become a partner, the head of department, you build a team. We're a little small, tiny regional law firm. So you tell us what you need kind of thing. Uh, so I went for it. So a little tiny little tiny Exeter law firm called Mitchell Moores, uh, which has now become a great law firm. And they were like outside the top 200, small thing. But me and a couple of other guys um, set up their London office. We grew it to 40-some people. We were profitable. It was all going really well. It was fantastic. Um, but we were working. What was your main source of motivation? I don't know. Uh, I think, I, I do wonder, because now, now I, have, so I have a daughter who's 17 and a half years old, and I try to explain to her about these kind of motivations this kind of desire and I think I wonder if it's character or I wonder if because it was never anything specific like I never like a lot of times now these days I will listen to something or read something or have a podcast and connect with a person's motivation at the time I was just acting like I was just moving you know I was kind of it was all this kind of just force if you like and never really thought about it do you think that because of the disappointment maybe from the all-american athlete kind of aspect or that chapter of your life do you think it was a way to prove yourself as well maybe yeah for sure because uh, there's definitely a thing where when I introduced myself often for years uh, less so now um, is I would often in introduce myself that way and say I'm this kind of athlete you know so and it's a funny it you start to see yourself in a way you begin to characterize yourself in a way it also means that when I'm on the treadmill like you were doing is I had a tough time enjoying myself. I, I, I really, I'm, I'm a bit, because I'm, I'm now you know, a 52-year-old person. I'm not a 22-year-old person. So the 22-year-old guy was pretty fast. The 52-year-old guy's not fast. You know, so I'm just like hard on myself you know, when I'm on the treadmill. So I'm trying to find peace with that. Um, but you, you asked about the kind of journey. So there was one, one client that I had when I was at Mitchell Moore's, and it was this company, Miniclip, this little, little tiny games publisher. And they had an offer from Walt Disney to sell their business for an enormous amount of money, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for two young guys. And they turned it down because they thought the company was worth more. Incredibly. Uh, and at the time, there were very few employees. I think there were you know, fewer than 15 employees or so, s small number. 
and they asked me to join as their kind of general counsel and a director and all these things. And I said, no, I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, I've just, I've come all this journey as a corporate lawyer. I'm not going to like go to some games company. Uh, and wonderfully, we've kept talking over the course of a year or so. And then, and as the, as I was cracking under being the head of corporate and growing a 40 person team and kind of really working around the clock, I was just thinking, I need some sleep, you know, and the game, then I also was looking at what the games industry was doing. And I was thinking, it's the future. Like I started really understanding it and thinking about it and seeing where it was going and also seeing that the kind of macroeconomic part of it, how it could, it, it's going to improve telecoms. It's going to improve, you know, all, I didn't know about mobile phones yet. They hadn't really come out yet. Because when was this, like 2007? This is 2005, 2006. 2005. Okay. Um, so in the end I joined and I joined and I came in and it was wonderful. I was there for, you know, seven years, seven and a bit years. And we took Miniclip from a very small company to a massive company, you know, and we sold it to the big Chinese giant Tencent. Um, which was amazing. So, like, a as a lawyer, that started that started to be a super interesting thing, you know, to kind of work as general counsel in a media company with a company that was 15, 16 employees that eventually became hundreds and hun I think it's now thousands of employees. How was the, like, cultural dynamic? Was the culture very, very different? So the culture was different, and the culture was different because there's a, a vast preconception about who, what lawyers are like and who they are, and especially working with a bunch of gamers, they, you know, they, I was the first experience of a lawyer for, for, me, for many of them. You know, they had actually never met one. And they had a lot of preconceptions as to what they're like. Like what, like what? Um, I don't know, just like negative or super academic or like, I don't know, condescending. It was, like they, they, it was mostly negative view or blocking things like, oh, don't send it to legal. It's only going to be bad news, that kind of, you know. So I, I, I sort of expected that. So I spent the first almost the first year, just going around the company and kind of sitting with every single person, just talking to them, getting to know them, getting to know who they are, but also thinking about, like, what do they do? Like, and learning about the business and learning, you know, because I'm coming from a law firm background, so I, need, I, I don't know what load balancing between two continents means on the servers. And I'm like, okay, what's the server? How's that work? I, I literally didn't even know. And wonderfully, people often are so happy to explain. People love telling you about the things they do. You know, um, And I was a very avid listener. I just was learning from everybody. And one of the great things that came out of it is it was put like a human contact, which was great. But then equally, I started to learn what the work was going to be. I started to figure out, okay, the publishing aspect of the company, that's you. And you do a lot of that. So I need, we're going to talk to each other. We're going to talk a lot probably because that's the contracts and the money, right? So that's legal. Like, you know, so we're going to be connected. Whereas other people who are maybe doing kind of some of the back-end tech, it's interesting to know what they do, but we may not interact as often, mm. you know? So you mentioned the word publishing. Like, mm -hmm. how... So from my understanding with games, mm -hmm. like, which is obviously very limited, is that... Just as a player. <laughs> as a player. Like, um, yeah. You can buy things one-off, you can do subscriptions and the rest of it. But I guess you mentioned things such as publishing and like how, what is like, what are the game economics exactly? Like how does it work essentially? If you think of the games industry effectively as three players, right? So you've got the platforms. So in my case, the platforms would either be, you've either, either got mobile, so you've got Apple and Google and other mobile, I guess Netflix now as well, these kind of things in Amazon. Um, that's platform. And then platform includes Xbox, PlayStation, Steam, Nintendo. That's all the platforms. Then you've got developers. So you've got the guys from the giant AAA developers, Call of Duty and you know, Cyberpunk and all the, the massive, massive developers, League of Legends, who make the AAA games. And those AAA games are the equivalent of Avatar. You know, I mean, it's multi, multi, hundred million 
200, $300 million games to make them. They develop those games. But even, even those developers who make the giant AAA games, they still rely on the platforms. They still have to have a good relationship with Xbox and a good relationship with PlayStation and so forth. So those big developers can fund themselves. They can manage themselves. They can produce themselves. And then they can distribute through the platforms themselves because mm-hmm. they're big enough and they have enough money. Is it the platforms that would pay the developers directly? No. So, well, uh, kind of yes and no. So okay. the, the consumer um, buys it through the platform and the platform just remits the money. So, the, so they, it's, they, don't, they pay them, but they, it's, just, it's just remitting. It's, it's passed through. Um, so, because we pay, like the, you know, the, the consumer buys and then it just goes through. The publisher then, on the other hand, the publisher effectively, if you're not a giant AAA game company and you're just a little indie company or you're a smaller company and you have a great game idea and you want to make it, the publisher acts as project finance company. So very simply, indie game of the year this year is a wonderful game called Cult of the Lamb. So it's a super cool game and you're effectively a cult leader and you get all these followers and you kill them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cynical, but that's indie games are often have a kind of a funny edge to them. So the Cult of the Lamb guys are kind of an Australian studio with a super idea some years ago. The typical game cycle development's about three years, two and a half, three years. So you could imagine three years ago, they pitched their game to Devolver. Devolver loved it and decided as a publisher, they were going to fund it. You agree a budget. And then over the three-year period, a good publisher will not only give the money to the guys, but also like kind of coach them and mentor them and guide them and shape them a bit, help them and make sure they're hitting milestones. And if they're having difficulties, even like now that Devolver's got a big legal department, even when they're having little non-development troubles, like they're having something trouble with their lease or maybe they're having some problems, we help them just, we just kind of guide them and coach them. And then as the game is getting better and better, we use quality assurance people to help and we pay for all that. Like we're, we're we're the money, and also the guidance. And it sounds coach. quite similar to like a music label. Like a music label, very yeah. much so. Very similar, like a music label or a, a production, Hollywood production. You know, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a project finance with a, with a specialist skill set. So we're the, yeah, we're the bank and the helper. Eventually, like with a publisher then, when the thing gets launched, we then do all the marketing and we have the relationships with Xbox and PlayStation, Nintendo, Steam. And then we help to really manage the, the commercial launch of it around the world. Got it. And then... then in that case, using the Cult of the Lambs as mm-hmm. an example where the Volver are sitting. So they would have an agreement with those developers. Mm-hmm. Then when the game gets launched, customers pay through the platform. Mm-hmm. Then the money will go through from the platform through to the Volver and then to the developer. Exactly. I see. That's right. And I what see. we do is then we keep our share and we give them their share. I got it. I got it. And I guess it comes with its pros, right? Although they may be getting less of the pie, but ultimately the whole pie is actually bigger. Because by a, by a mile, yeah, yeah. yeah, or, yeah. or, or even, even possible. I mean, oftentimes developer doesn't have their own money, so you'd have to go to like a small venture capital fund or a local government seed fund and try to see if someone will back you financially. Because making a game three million dollars, four million dollars, ten million dollars to make it, you know, and if you are just a group of, group of friends, you know, who are looking to try to make a game, you don't you don't have that money, you know. So a publisher like like all the publishers, we have we have the bank, so we we fund it. So what an indie game costs like up to a few million dollars for sure. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah, in fact, I mean, uh, as the years are going on, the the consumer is demanding more functionality. That you know, the consumer is also demanding games that have more back end, some new features or some new downloadable content. I think that's pretty cool, and I think as you're coming in and learning all of those like elements, you become a much more vital asset. 
to the business, right? Because when you're working with the business directly, you don't want to talk finance speak or legalese, as it were. You want to be able to speak the same language as them. And by having that fundamental understanding of the business, it becomes more relatable. And it makes you stand out. Like you said, you're a little bit of a salesman, a salesman lawyer. Like I remember when I first joined finance as, a, as an intern, that was one of the first compliments that I got. Well, I say compliment now. At the time, I was like, should I be insulted? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you really trying to say? But I think it's the, the ability to kind of stand out, you know? And I think in a world where you can have a become a specialist or a generalist, you're gonna become a specialist generalist or a generous, gener generalist specialist, right? Where you're able to stack all these different skills and essentially create a niche of your own, you know? Because I guess that sounds quite familiar, similar, similar to you, right? I think so, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's really well said. And, you know, you, you reflecting back when you're a bit older, you know, as we are now, or as I am anyway, so you, you start to reflect back and, you, and you, you can see that that's the way you did it. But at the time, it seems quite natural. At the time you're thinking, I have a goal and I think I know how to get there. And I think what I need to do is I need to convince these people to kind of to join me, you know, to, to, to be a part of this journey with me or I need their help. I need their support, you know, so how do I get them on side? I remember some of the uh, like successful politicians over the years, like there was, again, however people think about Tony Blair or Bill Clinton and things, but they, they said interesting things at the end of the beginning part, or even Barack Obama said it, part of his beginning of his journey when he talked about, it's not, it's the journey, the, the hope is not me as a person. The hope is, is the idea. And I'll, I, I happen to be the person on stage, but it's not about me. Like it's about this whole idea we're all pushing. And when I, like, so after Miniclip, when I was going to the, getting to the law firm's just before Devolver, I would I, I pushed that concept. And I would go to these big law firms like Cooley and Phil Fisher, and I said, the games industry is going to be the biggest entertainment industry in the world. It's going to overtake film. It's going to overtake TV. It's going to overtake both of them together, which now it has now done. And I said, as a big global law firm, you need to be in that. You need to be a part of that. And it's a movement. It's a global thing. I said, and... It's going to start impacting one day sustainability. It's going to impact telecoms. It's going to impact social media. It's going to impact, um, I don't even know what, like manufacturing about, you know, education, you know, property. So the games industry is going to be this Trojan horse that's going to do all this. And you guys need to be a part of that because there's going to be lots of legal work to do and clients will need your help and you need to be versed in that. And you, and you need to be credible to win those clients. You need to, you need to have a credible understanding of, the, of those businesses and the industry uh, and that's me, you know, like, and I, so, and they, and they, and I, and I kind of helped them give, and I helped them see the vision and then they helped, then they believed in me. Like then it became this, and I was very grateful, you know, we had this really lovely partnership for these to do, but it was, it was pitching, you know, was, I'd walk up and be like, you know, it's almost like the, if you imagine the future, my son, like you kind of like, you know, you're <laughs> painting the view. But. That's amazing. Like when you were having that conversation with your wife about leaving the law firm to join the game company, like, what was that like? Was she all for it or was no. she like, no? That was, it was definitely bad. It was definitely a tough one. That yeah. was a tough one for her, for sure. Also because she was seeing me achieving what I, what I wanted to achieve. So she saw me as this, and she, at the time, and she was right uh, often, where a young guy coming to London with nothing, you know, with kind of a, a, a plane ticket and, you know, some school, and then just building a career and then becoming the head of corporate and a partner in a law firm and having good money and all these good prospects. And she was saying, you're at the top of your game. You know, you're you're going to try to step out of that road, off that road when you're at the when you're you're at the top. You know, and and in fact, from there, there were other big law firms seeing that I had this entrepreneurial side, and some of the some of the UK or European law firms 
really like that that American aspect of it. They're like, yeah, this guy's got this kind of this entrepreneurial aspect about him. He's built something. He's created because for that law firm, you know, for Mitchell Moore's, the you know the London corporate law activity was zero. It, had, it was a single. It was zero dollars. You know, so I grew all of it, and so she was like you're silly. I mean, they used to like, you could go to other law firms and they would really, they would really value that. Um, but I, I just, kept, I was thinking, no, the, the, the games thing, it's, it is, it's a better road and being a business lawyer is more to my personality and there's more upside, you know, the, the, the possibility to, you know, for great wealth, you know, being, being part of something like that is very possible. So she backed me, but she was reluctant. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was, it was, it was only because of love. I mean, otherwise, otherwise she's like probably telling her friends like he's mad. And, and also, when the chips were down. So, you know, you, you also know some of the stories that, you know, seven and a half years later, we grew Miniclip to be a huge company. It was fantastic and super exciting. Sold it to Tencent, the amazing thing. And then the CEO at the time kind of fired a, bun- you know, a bunch of us. And my wife, what she could have done is she could have said, I told you so. She could have kind of been negative, but she wasn't. You know, she was kind of like, it was this foxhole mentality of, of, of rebuilding, regrowing, and trying and starting again. That must have been harsh, though, because so you were so... Yeah, what happened essentially? Well, so um, it's a really tough one, like because so very simply it was, and I don't know the reason still to this day, um, but at the time the, the you know the CEO wanted there were there were four of us there was the COO, uh, the CTO, and the head of games, and then the GC. And I think the CEO, since the sale to Tencent had finished, he wanted to kind of change management and kind of move on and things. And even though the four of us, especially the other three, they were the very first employees of Miniclip. And, and one of them, uh, the COO, was the CEO's friend from when they were children. They knew each other from when they were 10 years old. Um, but he, he, got, he got rid of all four of us. And I think, in, I only can guess, I can speculate, in his mind, he just wanted to have a fresh start for himself, you know, and, and get, get rid of us. But it was, really, it was really brutal, actually, because the way that I did the sale to Tencent is we kept the shares, I put the shares into like a trust. But you had to be an employee to access those trusts. So by, by no longer being an employee, you act, we actually lost all the value. We, you know, we lost everything. So it was, it was quite tough. And I, I spent about a month or so, this was kind of in July, August, 2015. I spent about a month just being pretty angry and, you know, and, uh, and then also feeling betrayed and, 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 and thinking about friendships. You know, a lot, a lot of times, thinking about this recently quite a lot about in the professional world, often friendships are transactional. You know, people are friendly with each other and they're kind to each other. But it's, there's a little bit of needing something from each other. There's a little bit of transaction. And I've now found, kind of at Devolver and the games industry recently, and maybe as I get a bit older, I guess, that there seems to be less of that transactional nature of friendships. It seems like people are now a bit more just wishing you well and having a, ni- having a nice time. And at, at the time, it was not that. At the time, so... My perception of it was it was not a transactional friendship, but I think maybe it was. And so I was like, not only I was kind of out of money and out of a job and out of all, like all, all the thing that I had helped build, I didn't get to enjoy or realize, but also I felt like my friends, they were not my friends. Like I was, it was quite hurtful. But the, like all these things, you, you have to focus. So before that day, like before that July, August, kind of in about two months before, my wife and I sold our house and we bought our current house, which at the time was these three apartments. And it was like a dilapidated old Victorian house, kind of, I say crumbling, that's probably a bit exaggerating, but it was like, you, you couldn't really live in it. It was pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Asbestos, you know, leaky waters, like, you know, cracking. And 
we had undertaken a vast building project. This is before the being fired? About two months before. So we undertook this building project that was a multi, multi-million pound building project. Yeah. So then being fired, then not having the budget. Like, so suddenly it was kind of like, we took on this big thing. I didn't know that that was going to, I didn't foresee that. So then we are, it is that, and maybe that's the athlete thing, or maybe that's the partnership thing. You're kind of sitting there together and just thinking, we can't feel sorry for ourselves. We got stuff to do. We now own this big project and we need to just get it done. So you start to like, just kind of start grinding your way through it. And then that's when that salesman stuff kicks in where I remember having the first job that I got of, of with Cooley, which is a vast big law firm. And I, I became their European head of digital for them. And it was the funniest meeting. Cause I remember saying, I should be an equity partner in your law firm. And they're like, okay. And I said, I've got no clients. I've got no business, like no to transferable business. I've got no track record because I've just been in the house for almost eight years. I've got no money, so I can't buy my way in, but I st still should be a partner. And they were like, mm, we'll make you like this thing called special counsel, which effectively is like a salaried partner, not an equity partner. And the reason I needed that is because I, I needed to have a certain kind of job so I could get lending. Yeah. So, so I, I needed to not be an associate. And also, I was in my 40s, so I was thinking, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Yeah, I'm, you've I'm, done a lot. And, 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 and I'd, yeah. I'd already been a head of corporate law as well. Literally. But the way that that worked was that story. The way mm. that that worked was the games industry, and it's credible, and it's M&A, and it's like, this is going to make you guys a lot of money. It fits well with Cooley's brand. And again, I'm so grateful. Like, the guys there, they believed in me. They believed in the story. They gave me the chance. It's amazing. And, uh, and they were, it's, it's a funny thing, Yemi, because there were times, and it's, it's embarrassing almost even to admit it, but there are times so I'm sitting in Cooley's offices at Liverpool Street, and it's a big, tall, glass and steel building, and it's stunning. And I'm literally, I'm like a salaried partner in a global law firm in a glass and steel box on the 10th floor. Like, it's, it's amazing. And I'm sat there looking out the window thinking, this is terrible. Like, you know, like this is like, you know, thinking I shouldn't be here. Like, I should be I still like, and I remember thinking that those moments when I was quite, depressed. I w I, what I would do is I'd go down the lift and I'd just go walk. And I walked around Bishopsgate. I walked around Shoreditch. I'd just go for like a, like a three-hour walk, kind of get my head straight and kind of come back and then work, work through the night. And then those feelings and those thoughts became kind of less frequent and less frequent and less frequent and less frequent. So it was kind of like once a day and then it was like once a week and then it was kind of once a month and it was like twice a year. Like then, and then after a while, you just started getting in your stride. And the wonderful thing about it was that the house building project, even though it was the it was the worst thing in our lives, eventually became the best thing in our life. It, it was the thing that saved us in a way. You know, it was the thing that having, I don't know, it's like having a, a giant negative thing to focus on makes you focus, you know, gives you, gives you purpose, you know, and finding all that great purpose. Um, it was an incredible thing. And then, again, then I was, then it was, I was successful, like it was going really well. And then I still decided I had to be an equity partner. It was, that was a little bit of ego, a bit, maybe. And maybe that's the, the, the track and field mentality guy coming out. So I started speaking to all the European firms. And that's when I again told my story again and said, the Cooley stuff is going really well. It's being very successful. The games industry is going to be enormous. You know, so you guys really need me. You know? And then again, I'm so grateful. Like I met the most amazing managing partner, Phil Fisher, this guy, Michael Chizik, who's an inspirational person to, to me. And we took this long walk along the Thames which is amazing. Again, this, this managing partner of a law firm took like an hour or so out of his day for us to stroll. And we're strolling just like old school, like, you know, hands behind your back, strolling and chatting like, like two old men. 
awesome. And we, we talked about philosophy and the universe and the world, and we talked about all this kind of great stuff. And he's like, you got to join us, don't you? I'm like, I do. And then he, he said, okay, he's like, okay, you're equity. And that was that. And it was just, and I came in, boom, you know, right at the top. It was awesome. So, and it was about, I don't know, it was about the vision, it was about the belief, if you like, and it was something about the connection between the two of us that made him think, yeah, this, uh, this guy's safe. Like, he, you know, I can, I can bring him in and uh, I can bet on him. It's incredible because to come from, like, such bad news and that feeling of, I guess, being betrayed, it's easy to start changing your professional relationships and how you meet people. So if someone makes you a promise, you're like, mm, you really, are you really promising? Like, how, how were you still able to open or, like, build those relationships with an open heart regardless of what happened to you before in the past? Maybe just because I, I needed it. Like, maybe, you know, again, you, I could be as simple as just saying I almost had to. You know, it's the, uh, it's probably a weird thing to say, but, like, if, you know, there's a dog or something and you kind of hit it and the dog comes up and wags its tail again or something, it's not, it's not as bad as that, but it's almost like I... Uh, I was reestablishing those relationships. I was reestablishing that, and I was not going to be not true to my character. Like I just, I knew I had to be myself. Um, and it was, I, I was down a lot. I mean, there are definitely times where I just wouldn't like go to work for a day. I would like go, I'd walk around Hampstead Heath and just like feel sorry for myself. And then you kind of think, I got stuff to do, you know. I think also like quickly establishing new relationships. So. One of the things that I'm most, most grateful for is there's this wonderful person called Shum Singh. So Shum is a guy who founded his own um, investment bank. And Shum and I have been friends for about 20-something years as well. And when the Miniclip stuff happened, the first thing Shum did was, and I said, i got to rebuild everything. And he said, get a plane ticket. Come with me to Korea. He was going to a games conference in Korea. So as I said, things were all happening kind of July, August. This was the 1st of November. So it's only about a, two months later. We go to this games conference, and I'm still negotiating with the CEO of Miniclip. I, I'm not even really exited yet. I'm still negotiating my exit, which didn't go very well. But anyway, I was still negotiating, trying to negotiate. And Shum just started introducing me to people, making, making connections. And in, it was wonderful in a business transactional sense. But kind of sitting here now and reflecting on it, thinking with you, I'm really grateful that it was like it started to rebuild friendships. And some of the people, so two nights ago, Tuesday night, there was the Pocket Gamer Conference in London, the, all, the, all the mobile games companies. And many of those same people from that November in Korea who come from America and come from Europe and come from all, even the UK, um, were at, that, at the dinners and things, and I got to see them. And it's like a big, big hug, and I get, Brian, how are you? And you just think, it's wonderful. And I think maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, maybe part of it was immediately reestablishing friendships, like immediately, and maybe part of it was the fact that my wife and I had this giant thing to do, like a thing that was going to like ruin us if we didn't get it right, like total focus. And maybe like it's, it's maybe it was those two things, in a way. And then I don't know, like I mean, but again, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't as beautiful as that. Like it was definitely some days that were that were pretty tough, and you know, days where I was down. But then you just kind of keep moving, keep moving, keep kind of keep going. Yeah, no, it's, it's like there's so <laughs> many things that you said there, and I think being true to yourself and your character, like. It's hard because the world does treat you, tell you, tell you to be more tough, you know? Like, don't be yourself. Be like this person, be like that person. But to actually stand in the face of, like, like I said, so much disappointment and sorrow and to not, like, take it, just like, run with it. And I think good people and the good relationship that you have, it transcends, you know, what you may have done 20 years ago, like you said, with mm -hmm. Shums. Like, mm -hmm. if you treated him like a dickhead, 
that many, many sure. years ago, he wouldn't have called you. For sure. You know, he wouldn't have said, let's go to Korea. For sure. The fact that he actually wanted to spend time with you, you know, how long is that trip? It's a long trip. It's a long <laughs> trip, for sure. You know, sure. and even your willingness to mm -hmm. say, yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah. One of the other things that reset things that, that went really well at the time was something that I started while I was still at Miniclip that actually I continued to do is I have this weird kind of theory about staying in touch with the things that I loved when I was younger and trying to make sure that those aspects of my personality and my character are still being developed and still being explored. I had an amazingly good fortune of being uh, on the board of, uh, of trustees for the British Museum. So I was a British Museum person with the members and then also with the Tate. So again, interestingly, during that time, the focus on the house, the focus on building a legal business, the focus on money, but then I still would have some trustee meetings and I'd kind of go along and I would say, yeah, the, the guy who did a history degree all those years ago still gets to go to the British Museum and talk about history once in a while. Or the guy who did an art degree still gets to go to the Tate and talk about art once in a while. And it was this lovely kind of counterbalance with all that kind of focus and corporate and law and like all the kind of rebuilding and friendships. And, and it was kind of like, oh, it was a little bit reminding me of me. It's just thinking, you know, I, I, I love art and I love history and I love reading and things. So, um, and that was... That was also like a nice little oasis in these yeah. little these meetings once in a while. Does it also make you think about what your purpose is? I do wonder sometimes about whether maybe during all that time, all those years, whether I had just a sense of it that was unspoken. Like maybe maybe now as an older person, I can reflect back and think, gosh, yeah, maybe I always did have some kind of driven purpose that, that I didn't really articulate, but it was in there. So that's what it sounds like, because mm -hmm. um, obviously it's only when you look back, things start to make sense. But the book, it's like you got it up from running. The law firm got it up and running. Miniclip got it up and running. <laughs> Cooley got it up and running. <laughs> digital. Um, Field Fishers, I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it was a game thing. Yep. And then now with... So Devolver. So that was that. So Devolver, um, again, wonderfully. Again, it's all about sales, right? So I, uh, uh, I, I would go... I had the sales pitch down about how I was trying to make sure that everybody in the world knew that I was the corporate games lawyer. So I'm having a beer with a guy in New York years ago, and we're chatting about who knows what, sports or something. And, uh, and I just, it was almost like mantra. I was kind of like, hey, I'm the, I'm the corporate games lawyer. Like, I'm actually, I'm the corporate games lawyer. <clears throat> Other of his colleagues would come up, like, oh, Brian, what are you, I'm the corporate games lawyer. And it kind of worked. Like, it started permeating this zeitgeist around the world that, like, that was kind of who I am. So what happened was he was then having a beer with the CEO of Devolver, like, you know, a year later or something. And the CEO of Devolver said, yeah, we're thinking about doing an IPO. We're thinking about making all these acquisitions. We're thinking about doing all this stuff if only we had a corporate games lawyer. <laughs> and the New York guy's like, Brian, like, you know, like, I've met him, I know him. Like, you know, so then they, they called me up and then I went. Yeah. Because, yeah, because it, cause it like, I loved being a general counsel. And like, you know, many, and that was one of the sad things too, was the job that I loved, you know, and, and getting back to the law firms was for a purpose. It was to finish the house, it was to reestablish myself. But when a great company, you know, big games, a global games publisher comes calling and says, we want to not only let you be part of something wonderful, but also get the job that you love. Yeah. It's kind of like. It's so interesting because <laughs> in this world, I feel when people think about brand and being known for something, a lot of emphasis is on what you do online and not building those relationships offline, like having that dinner, going for that drink, um, going for that walk, as it were, you know, like how did you how did you find the time to be able to manage all of that? as well as your normal day-to-day. -day. Well, so you're an entrepreneur, Yemi. So you know, <laughs> you know, you never find the time. You just do it. Like, so yeah. you just stay awake, right? Yeah. So yeah. you just, um, my, my, I get, my sleep is pretty poor. Mm -hmm. I guess I, mean, I think a lot of- How many sleep. hours do you get? 
I don't know, five maybe, that sort of thing. That's not too bad, actually. That's not too bad. Yeah. I, know, I, know, I know people are worse. So <laughs> you, you might be. I don't know. Maybe you're worse. But. I'm trying to be better, actually. <laughs> this year, this year I, I made my promise to try and get seven each night. Gosh. Yeah, that's my, that's my promise. I'm doing okay so far. The only way to do that is to go to bed earlier. That's the you, trick. Because you, you, you're going to get up when you get up. So That's the yeah. trick. That's yeah. the trick. That's the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but finding the time, I, don't, I, think the, I think I just do it. Like, I just do it anyway. And I think what I do is maybe, maybe there's a bit of a catch-up mentality in the sense of I know that sitting here with you right now and having just a really wonderful conversation, that's, that's terrific. And I know that my emails are still piling up in the back of my mind. But I also know then what I'll do is tomorrow I'll do a 16-hour day or something, and then I'll just get it all done. So, like, I'm, I'm willing. I'm always willing for the, the, the pain does never bother me. Mm, it's like it's part of your life. Like, you're enjoying, you enjoy it. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Because I guess with, with, when you say to people that you're a games, corporate games lawyer, what were the reactions that they get? Because as someone who's not in the industry, I never understood how big games is. And you don't really meet people who work in it on a day-to-day basis. I don't know where everyone is hiding. I don't know where you hide. <laughs> you know? So like, what, what, what reactions do you normally get from people? So it's two audiences, yeah. right? So if I'm with like, my wife's doctor friends or some of my old lawyer friends, uh, it's typically negative. It's like, yeah, it's no lack of understanding. Or it's, uh, how do you make kids not play 18 hours a day? What are you doing? <laughs> and you think it's like, so it's, it's kind of, a, it tends to be off the cuff negative if yeah. it's, a, if it's a, perf- a classic professional person, like a doctor or a lawyer or something. Less so with law. Law is now catching up. Uh, my, my wife and her doctor friends still don't understand it. If it's kind of younger people or people maybe who are savvy with social media or people who are kind of, who do play once in a while, then it's a huge thing. Then it's kind of, know asking for t-shirts and asking like then it's like and especially devolver itself you know devolver is known as the really the good the, the good guys of, of the of the games world mm-hmm. why is that why is that well, so devolver was founded in uh, about sort of 14 15 years ago by some guys who were in games publishing and they were seeing lots of other publishers that would require the developer to hand over all their ip to take a really heavy rev share like an, an overly disproportionate rev, rev share to take like securities over the developer's company, to, to really be really onerous, like a bank, like an actual bank. And they felt that that was the wrong way to go. They felt that actually a developer should retain their creative freedom. They should retain the IP that they create. They should have a at least 50-50, if not the other way around. You know, that the publisher is less important than the developer. The developer is the important person. So maybe it should be 60-40 this way instead of 70-30. You know, it should be that way. So Devolver came in with this new brand and just saying, we are developer first. We're never going to be on TV talking about how great we are. We're never going to be on LinkedIn talking about how great we are. We're not going to own your IP. We're not going to own your creative control. Like, it's going to be you. We're going to fund you and support you. And they've been true to that. Like, you know, Devolver has been very true to that over the years. So when I go to things like Pocket Gamer the other night and people say, they all want to share their story about how Devolver helped them in their career. Like, oh, like, oh, Devolver person five years ago was the one person who listened to me and things. And it's all really lovely, you know. And I get to enjoy that. And I had nothing to do with it. I'm like, okay, thank you. That's cool because um, it. It, it reminds me of, an, of another record label um, called XL and um, XL Recordings. And they're in that similar vein whereby they're able to champion indie artists. Like they themselves are quite independent. So they're not scared of, being a little bit alternative and I see that same thing with Devolver and I think in this entertainment world where money kind of rules it all and it's everything has just been watered down like when I think of films for example when they come out 
there's not many things that are pushing the edge or pushing the boundaries, you know? And I saw a quote from one of the, the Devolver co-founders who said that just because we don't sell a certain number of units doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And that spoke a lot to me because that thing where it, it might not be monetary that comes, it could be network, it could be the next 10 years and all the work that happens there. And it's that strong brand, as it were, like I think it's okay, yeah. For sure, or it could be their next title. Yeah, the yeah. Second, the second yeah. title, or, or it could be, you know, Devolver's brand and Devolver's relationship with its developers meant that when Fall Guys was being planned, the, you know, the Mediatonic game that became a huge, it was the number one game in the world for a while. It was a massive, over, overtaking every other game. It was the number, game, number one game in the world. That was a Devolver published game. Mediatonic had offers from everyone, you know, to kind of publish that game. And they went with Devolver because of, of you know, the, the good guy nature of it, the fact that they would retain all their IP, the, the fact that they would keep creative control, all that kind of great stuff that creative people love, you know, so. With Devolver, and its relationships with the platforms, which are quite key. So I look at what's happened with Epic Games and Apple, where a lot of the, um, so for those of you who don't know, it's to do with the cut that Apple takes when people make a transaction through the app. So Apple takes a 30% cut of all the transactions that come in. Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite, they're not very happy with that because they believe that they're driving more value, therefore Apple should not take that cut. And then you go into the question of like, monopolies and duopolies, what is the right thing, how to do right by the developers and making more, making sure more money comes into their pocket. So with the Volvo, is there any tension with some of those platforms per se, where you're trying to do right by your developers, but there's only so much you can do? So there isn't. So for us, the we have only good relationship with the platforms. So we, like for us, we know that we're not really at the vanguard of pushing what their percentages and things are. We are super collaborative with our platform. So the thing that we do see that does affect Devolver is as those tensions, particularly the monopoly, the monopoly tensions, we then start getting phone calls from Netflix. We get phone calls from you know, Amazon and people who are having platforms that are trying to grow. Microsoft's trying to grow its own platforms in addition to Xbox. Um, and they want us to start having some of our games on there, you know, on their content. So then we have to keep going back to our developers and saying with our exclusive publishing relationship, we want to port it to Android. We're going to port your, you know, and, and maybe not always, like maybe there's a great game that's great for Xbox because of the nature of the game that controls the, the play of it, but it might be rubbish on uh, an iPad or something. You know, it, might, it, might, it might be no fun. So if we think the game's worth it, then we might go back to Netflix or whomever and say, yeah, let's do it. So the, the lawsuits that are happening at the big boy level is affecting us in the sense that we are then thinking about more platform, more platforms are coming about and where the consumers are going to be and where gamers want to play. And then if that does happen, to making sure that the game's good enough. Because, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that your control, your Xbox control is going to be f good on a phone. It, mm -hmm. could be, it could be rubbish. But the fact that you've got more platforms coming mm -hmm. to the table and asking for these games, I mean, that again just shows how much growth Mm -hmm. is possible within this industry. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And particularly with there's um, a European law coming now where, where they're going to start breaking up. It's the financial payments aspect of it. So Apple, like Apple Pay, and the idea that Apple keeps people's credit cards, the European Commission has now finally ruled that, that, that that's unlawful, if you like, or at least that they can't be the only ones. And so now many other companies are going to be able to have their own payment systems and still use the App Store. 
which is quite incredible because I mean, you can see Apple's perspective. Apple's like, it's our app store, it's our payment process. Like, but other, but the, because it's so big and it's so many billions that the European Commission was saying, yeah, it is your app store, but it's now become like infrastructure. It's no longer private. It is private, but it isn't, you know. So we want you to accept other f payment methodologies. Which is so then other people could charge a smaller number. You know, they could, yeah, it could be different. And it puts more money into their pocket. It puts more money in their pocket. But then, and, and then ultimately, maybe it puts more money into more developers. That's the key thing. It puts more money into consumers. It puts more money into education. So, I mean, some s things that I love is I love where there's like mobile games now. If you look at Istanbul, so Istanbul... 10 years ago or so, maybe had like one or two studios. And then they've all been so successful that now there are many, many great development studios making amazing games. But then also, like, engineering degrees have come up. Some of the universities have special courses now. There's more technology. Like, so, like, it's just kind of lifted the water uh, for all of that. You know, I guess, well, the Bosphorus, is that the yeah, river? But, uh, yeah. you know, there's been this lovely kind of macro effect because of, because of mobile games. That's incredible. That's incredible. And when, when you think about other technologies, like the metaverse or VR, like Facebook have thrown a lot of money into VR. And um, I know quite a few friends, they use Oculus as part of their, like, that's what they do for gaming, you know? Do you see Devolver, does Devolver work in like VR, metaverse, things like that? Currently? So we do. So we, yeah. um, we're in VR. We're mm -hmm. not in metaverse quite yet. Okay. And I think, uh, Devolver tends to be a company that likes to be true to itself in that way. So we're, we're very true to Steam and Xbox and PlayStation PC console. We are, have a growing business in VR, for sure, because we're seeing more and more of our partners want us to be there. As far as metaverse goes, I don't know. Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if our games or if all the indie games that we publish are going to really... But if, if that's the way our developers start developing, then, we, then we'll support them. Yeah, it could be interesting because I know with... Um I can't remember the name of the game, but it's one of these crypto games where you have people playing and they're playing for money. And so you have independent game studios based in based using crypto. So I wonder if that potentially could be like an indie game studio playing around with like cryptocurrencies, have that metaverse, but also be part of the Devolver ecosystem. Could you see that happening? I don't. Okay. So we're not, <laughs> easy answer that one. Because um, we, uh, Devolver itself, one is a listed company, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of quote on the stock exchange. So we're, we're pretty far from crypto. And then also I think Devolver's own ethos is not really into that, that, that kind of shiny tech stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I think, but these next 10 years, um, like, gaming is going to become more prevalent. Like, it's the way where people just interact with people. Like, I, I remember I haven't used... Like, when I think about when the last time I played, say, PlayStation, it's literally just, like, playing FIFA against somebody else. And then I have my friends who, every night, they're playing FIFA. And I had no idea. And they're doing it from a network perspective. And the way I thought about gaming before was that you buy your game, you hold it all the time. But now it's more streaming. It's like, you know, ownership of the game is less important than the actual enjoyment and the collaboration or the networking with your friends, you know? Yeah, and I think definitely with COVID and lockdown has definitely accelerated what we've seen happening. Um, but on the other hand, human interaction and people spending more time indoors versus outdoors, do you see any counterbalancing happening to try and, I guess, overturn the negative impacts mm. of that? Um. That's a tough one because we're, we're not in as control of that. So what we try to do as publishers, we have small influences and not, not really very big ones. We have very small ones. One, one thing for us is that indie games do tend to be like an episode of play. 
They tend not to be the ones where you can just kind of play for days and days and days, generally speaking. An indie game tends to be a, a more compact playing playthrough. That's kind of one thing. Secondly, when, we're, when we are doing that coaching period, like the, the process where the game's being produced by the developer and we're funding them and helping them, giving them advice a little bit. Because, um, again, we, they're, they're creative, but we give them a little bit of advice. We sometimes look to know about their level, de level design and, and seeing that you can, you can achieve a level and then you don't have to kind of keep grinding for another many hours to kind of get to the next level. You can save your progress and then you can kind of move on. Some of the really hard grinding kind of games you're not able to save progress and things so it can be there's some there's some minor little design elements but then i think otherwise what we do is we try to from the in from the game experience itself is devolver does try to go for the really artistic indie style games so what we're hoping is we're hoping it's more of an artistic experience if you like rather than the like the call of duty or fortnite or something where you're just kind of playing for hours and hours and hours um I guess equally w w with our own ESG policy, back to the listed company. So putting my general counsel hat back on is uh, the as a listed company, we have a lot of our own focus is kind of environmental focus, supporting developers in parts of the world that maybe don't have the support that they need, or doing social things. So we're I guess we're hoping to counterbalance it by some of our corporate help, you know, supporting groups that need help and making charitable contributions, all that kind of stuff. But as far as yeah, as far as games with people spending too much time, that's trickier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with the current indie games, because I meant you mentioned about coaching, mm -hmm. is there a world where you have these games or these developers turning into AAA developers? Is that possible? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. We we see that a lot, and we do see some of the indie game proposals coming to us with bigger budgets. But the difference between the indie game budget three, five, eight, ten million dollars or so for a budget versus the kind of AAA budget, which, and AAA is, is partially the budget, so it's partially the fact that it's three hundred million dollars or something to make that game, but then it's also partially all the features and the multiplayer and all the kind of things that happen, and the indie games tend not to have that as features, and I don't think, I, I could say this today, but I don't think that even if Devolver were like a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company, like the whole point of us is indie games. So I don't see us ever, I, don't, I really don't see us ever trying to go for those AAA titles. But let's just say Fall Guys, mm -hmm. for an example, mm -hmm. like those developers, if they have another smash mm -hmm. and they're able to just get so much more money in the door and they wanted to reinvest it into mm -hmm. like building bigger mm -hmm. and better games, would you guys stay with them or would you? Well, well that, that, that's another easy answer. And mm -hmm. the, the reason is, is Devolver being true to itself, um, we, sold, we sold our publishing rights to Epic. So, uh, so Epic Games came and bought Mediatonic um, because of the success of Fall Guys. And because Mediatonic owned the IP rights, you know, because, again, they were able to get an, an amazing exit. Like they, that, so they're now a subsidiary of Epic Games. Um, and they are producing the next amazing Fall Guys thing happening. And then we were the exclusive publisher so Epic then bought the publishing rights from us, and then we had a wonderful windfall from that. So we kind of recognized that Fall Guys was heading towards that way, and we thought that's not us, so we, we sold it. Now it reminds me of a VC, mm -hmm. where you have funds which are focused only at, say, Seed or Series A. Mm -hmm. When a company gets too big, they sell their shares. They might have a little bit in there, mm -hmm. but you're proud about mm -hmm. what you've been for able sure. to support this company achieve, and for you sure. want them to go into bigger and better heights. For sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and we still have a great relationship, both with Epic and, and, and Mediatonic. Like, you know, we, I speak to Epic almost every week, actually, on different kinds of things and projects and so forth. That's brilliant. So it's quite collaborative, then? Very much so. Yeah. yeah very much. The, the games industry, except for my one experience, but generally speaking, <laughs> the games industry is super collaborative. Yeah. Like, super, super. You introduce you. So especially the venture capital aspect of games, 
it might be that a VC might say, actually, you know, Yemi, your project's not for us, but actually my other friend, talk to him. Maybe, you know, his, your project might be, might be good for him. And then maybe that you do secure some investment or you secure some backing. And the first guy's chuffed. He's like, oh, well done. That's great. You know, because maybe if you're, again, if you're transactional about it, you could say when the thing's big enough, maybe then we do, like, maybe we do get involved. Like someone else is going to pay for it. But actually it's more, it is more, it's more human, I feel like, rather than just being transactional. Have you yourself developed an eye for what's a good game versus the not no so idea. good <laughs> no, no. I think, I think it's because it's a bit like us saying at the beginning is uh, I'm a, like, I love listening and hearing what people are doing and I have this like a massive optimism and I'm a dreamer and you know so somebody comes to me and they say they're going to make this new like plant you know game or something I'm like that's amazing like you know I love it it's because I just like I, I, I see the possibility in everything that's the I think that's my that's probably my trouble no thank you Brian this has been amazing that's a pleasure um I was asking another question for you so if you think about last year and how last year has been for you what has been your best purchase under one hundred pounds that's changed your life? Uh, best purchase. I know. I know. It, I got it. So I have a tiny little Huawei Wi-Fi aggre aggregator. So what happens because I'm now I do travel a bit. I travel holidays more than work. Where we will go to we went to the Galapagos Islands recently. We've gone to all these like cool places. And having this little Wi-Fi aggregator, effectively what it does, it pulls in like 4G, 3G, 2G, and it kind of consolidates them in one little device. And then you can log on with your laptop and your phone and things. But what happens is in America, instead of my bills being 400 pounds when I get home, it's 50 pounds. Like, you know, so I think that's probably the thing that changed my life, is having a little tiny Wi-Fi aggregator. Because when my daughter graduates you know, from school this year, so she's going to graduate, and then she's going to take a, you know, the summer, her friends, and they're all going to travel around. I've got her a little tiny one to put in her bag so that I always know that she's got Wi-Fi no matter where she is so that she can always use her phone and there's no disconnection. So I'll, I'll, I'll feel safer that she's safe. Like I know that I can call her. No, oh, brilliant. Thank you, Brian. It's, it's been a, a real pleasure. pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks.